Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. This is the latest in our weekly update series, and joined as always by uh, our co-presenters, uh, Tom Meehan and Tony D'Onofrio, and our producer, Diego Rodriguez. And we're going to come go ahead and go through uh, little bits of information, updates, insights. And uh, what I'll do is, you know, I think all of us are a little beyond uh, fatigued about COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2. But it continues. Lately, uh, we've been running, it looks like, about 93,000 reported infections weekly, new incremental, uh, comparatively to last year, which is around 150,000. So, you know, it seems to have crossed that point now for the last few weeks where uh, uh, 22 is below 21, which is a reversal uh, where it was the opposite direction. Uh, the same time, what they're uh, deaths attributed to COVID-19 infections are down um, uh, less than half in some figures, about half in others to compare to this time last year. So just getting an idea that still a lot of people infected. Uh, I know people personally that have been infected recently, and uh, I'm sure many, many, many of you all do. So we know it's still a situation. We're seeing a lot now, uh, whether there's new research, it looks like, on top of older research, but a lot of discussion in the literature and the media around long COVID or persistent COVID um, and how damaging is it to dementia, to psychological functioning, to depression, to you know physical ailments, uh, chronic fatigue, and things like that. And these things are difficult, it looks like, to diagnose and attribute and things. And we've talked about on this podcast, false attribution error, where any or all of us are prone to assigning blame to one or more uh, causes when we really don't know, uh, whatever it is in politics and crime and family matters, whatever it is, and the same thing with disease. So it's very difficult um, because we're all so complicated and uh, what we're exposed to is as well. So, uh, but there are three uh, there are probably many hypotheses about why some people, as many as one in five, there are at least three studies I found that indicate that at least one in five individuals uh, infected with the COVID-19 will experience some or all uh, types of long COVID symptoms, uh, be affected uh, longer than the acute infection, fa- infection phase. And again, we see that some infections, as many as 55 percent do not even experience or realize they've got symptoms and any or all of us could fit into that category as well but some of the three hypotheses or three of them uh, one is that there's cellular damage to the blood flow and that uh, results in fatigue we're not as efficient or capable uh, whether and how long this will persist or is this lifetime lifetime and maybe it's all the above depending on the individual Um, but they're just less able to uh, handle satisfactory blood flow to every single part of our bodies uh, in the same way uh, as we might have before being infected with with the COVID-19 disease. So um, the other one is post-acute persistence that they just don't know why, uh, but it looks like while the body does a good job, our different immune systems uh, handling the infection even uh, clearing that not as, but we don't completely clear some people, the, the infection or maybe some pockets within our body at some uh, microscopic level that harbor uh, the, the virus 
some of the deleterious effects. So the third one is it, that, again, and we heard this a lot with a lot of the deaths early on with COVID-19, going back to 2020, particularly where there, our immune system may have gone awry, overreacted, was altered. Uh, it, it, something just went horribly wrong or partially wrong. Uh, and so that may or may not resolve over time. And so those are three of the reasons that we might be seeing that. Um, there seems to be, while it may occur uh, for some longer term than the acute infection phase, uh, maybe even years, again, we don't know how long it's been around, but probably no more than two and a half years, something like that. Um, so will this be the same for many of us or any of us that have uh, long COVID, if you will, uh, beyond that mark? Is this going to go on for months and years uh, beyond that? Uh, so we'll have to see. Uh, those that were vaccinated, fully vaccinated, seem to be have a lower rate, but not much lower rate of long COVID if they did get infection. So we know that uh, that there are the treatments are many they're trying to look at, but it's difficult if they don't know what's causing it. Clearly, just like what we do in crime prevention, we're trying we need to understand the causal elements of the situation and how they're interrelated and affect each other. And that's what we're going to aim at to do something about it. So uh, that's what's going on with disease the same way. So uh, looking over at the treatments, uh, that's where they're working. We see that there are dozens, if not hundreds, it looks like, of treatments, uh, research going on, both pre and uh, clinical and clinical. Uh, going over to vaccinated, we know that, uh, again, the United States sort of stabilized about 200 and just over 260 million Americans have been vaccinated, quarter of a billion, um, and just over 5.3 billion humans have been vaccinated globally. Uh, but and vaccination continues. We see in other news that uh, Dr. Fauci uh, at the Infectious Disease Centers um, under the CD, under the uh, uh, under the overall uh, NIH is retiring in December with 50 years of service. Um, you know, probably served us well in many ways over the last half a century, and then in other ways probably struggled, uh, but I think partially could be personality like all of us, partially because the science uh, is tough. It's really tough with these viruses and other infectious diseases to fully understand, and you're getting input and insights from a whole lot of people and trying to make the call like we all do with all the inputs we have. But at the end of the day, uh, it will be interesting to see who replaces uh, uh, that role, who fulfills that role, uh, how prominent or preeminent are they, um, and how they help us shape prevention, and in this case, what we've gone through together globally, our response uh, to something like a pandemic uh, or even an epidemic at a smaller scale. So um, very interesting. Uh, the, the, the clinical human trial, human clinical trials continue with vaccinations. Vaccines, in other words, where, again, we've got 52 and Phase one, exploratory dosing, looking for harm, um, and, uh, those components, as well as maybe is there some effectiveness. Uh, the larger scale phase two trials, 46 uh, vaccine candidates at that level now and, and 52, just over 50 in phase three, large scale, randomized, double blind, where both the administrator of either the placebo or the actual vaccine doesn't know which the patient's getting. And of course, the patient doesn't know what they're getting. That's a double blind study, right? So uh, we don't typically carry those off in criminology because 
those of us who are conducting the experiment, you know, know wh who's getting what, um, it's much more difficult for us to do a double blind. But in medical studies, it's easier, obviously, with a pill or with an injectable or something like that. It's tougher when they do surgical procedure uh, randomized controlled trials because normally the physician certainly knows what procedure they're uh, implementing there. Uh, the patient may or may not. Uh, hopefully not. So, um, all right. So moving on, uh, we'll talk a little bit about impact coming up again, third through the fifth of October. We continue to get amazing enrollment, uh, amazing level of sponsorship and engagement by our solution partners. Um, and so uh, we're we are continuing to move at pace with the content development. Um, I, I was just talking with Diego. We're going to get out a little more uh, in depth. A description of the sessions that you'll find at Impact to give you an idea of the breadth and scale, uh, the the depth of what we'll be looking at, and of course looking at the scientific uh, role behind that. What type of uh, research resulted in the the result uh, in the session that we're going to be talking about the content, um, but you're going to see uh, quite a bit, obviously around theft, whether it's opportunistic or systematic by say ORC boosters, for example. Uh, or commercial burglars. We're going to see content around aggression and violence, both by uh, those that we would call homeless and the harm that can be created by aggressive street behavior. Um, we're going to be looking, of course, at active assailant, early threat detection, and better understanding and breaking that down um, in ways to and tools that might be available. And, uh, and with body-worn cameras, uh, looking at how those sensors might help civilize behavior by the wearer and those that are on the other side of the camera, uh, there's been some good research on law enforcement. Normally, the studies show that it does work. Sometimes the effects don't last forever. There's waning, um, as we would expect, which means always like what we do in loss prevention and asset protection, we need to continue to keep it fresh, keep changing a little bit um, to maintain the positive effects that we're looking for out of anything that we do, any treatment. Um, so you'll see uh, sessions on fraud as well. Supply chain protection is going to be some really neat content in that area um, and uh, some of the innovation. You're going to see some top tech leaders uh, engaged this year at Impact. Um, and so stay tuned for that. We're using the labs for increasingly interesting and I think cutting edge research. Uh, a major, major tech company we're getting ready to engage right now and helping them develop some cutting edge uh, I think breakthrough uh, AI models because of the complexity of what they'll be working on and how we're going to simulate that in the LPRC engagement lab. Um, so we look forward to seeing everybody there. Uh, there's probably not a lot of places that have this kind of content, this much content, uh, the content that comes from, uh, from research and so on. Uh, and then you combine that with these lab tours and working in these world-class labs that we've got. Uh, I think everybody's going to be blown away with where we are with our labs at this point and where we'll be really over the next 60 days as more technologies are deployed. Many of our tech people are refreshing their technology right now. They're doing more with integrating that technology. Yesterday, I spent all day literally moving across the University of Florida campus, having meetings with different uh, UF senior, senior leaders in research, uh, in engineering, in cybersecurity, and so on. And, and by the way, uh, the last time I'd been to FIX, which is the University of Florida's um, Florida Institute for Cybersecurity, uh, they had five faculty. They had a couple grad students, maybe five or six grad students um, 
and they took up almost the floor of this building. Now that I've gone back, I think it's been three years, um, they have 178 researchers. They've taken over the entire building, um, and they've got three figures in PhD students alone. So the faculty's grown. The research level is in the millions now from Department of Homeland Security, from the intelligence community, from uh, uh, from the Department of Justice, from the National Science Foundation or NSF uh, and other funding sources. So it's a it's a pretty robust group. Um, it's amazing. And Kevin Butler, Dr. Butler, a professor, he is um, he's worked with the LPRC off and on over the years. He's now the director of that entire center. So very impressive. Um, so moving on, uh, I'm going to go ahead and get ready to turn it over. Uh, today, I'll turn it over to Tom Meehan first, and then Tom over to Tony Nofrio, who is sending his content in for this podcast, but he's traveling the world throughout Europe right now as we speak. So if I might, Tom, let me turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Reed, and certainly really excited to join you at Impact, uh, my favorite conference, and I, I've had a chance to look at the, the content, and it's really exciting. So uh, for those of you listeners that haven't registered, register. There's still time left, and uh, you won't be sorry. So I wanted to just kind of talk about a couple of different things. One, uh, by the time you're listening to this, a lot of folks, certainly in the southern portion of the country, your kids are already back in school. So just a, a reminder of as children are attending school, if they're using personal computers at home, some just quick tips that you can do to protect yourself. Uh, I talk about this often and I, I stress how important it is to make sure that uh, on your computers, your phones or any devices that you're applying security updates promptly when they're available. I think there are uh, still stories about, hey, the update broke my device, but the latter of the stories of people having really significant uh, incidents, cyber incidents when they don't update um, is definitely the, the worst of the two. And today, more than ever, with social media, with podcasts like this, vulnerabilities are and exploits are communicated in real time. So uh, nefarious actors, sometimes just listening to podcasts like this one, find out about something and go ahead and take advantage of it. The other thing is, if you don't um, have security software on your computer, take a look at that. Modern versions of Windows do have really great built-in software to protect, but Generally, if you have children of any age on a device, it, there's a benefit to going out and buying a security software. Uh, I often say nothing is free. Keep in mind that there are a lot of free options out there, but make sure you're reading the terms of services and understanding why it's free, what data you're giving up for that free software, and what is the difference between the free and paid versions. A lot of these security software packages are dollars a month. Um, generally below $5 a month, sometimes as low as a dollar or two a month. And the it adds, you know, a whole different layer of security and information. Uh, the other thing to talk about with your children is to make sure that there is some sort of backup routine in place, that if there is an event that uh, you have a way to manage that. And then I, I think last but certainly not least on your personal computers is look at a password management tool. We we I think we're all educated now today about how you don't want to share passwords between accounts, but that becomes cumbersome when you have very complex passwords that change all the time. There are a few password management tools out there that are really good. Um, in addition to Chrome, Firefox, uh, Safari, Microsoft Edge all have built in 
password managers. The encryption that stands behind these uh, password managers are uh, usually better than bank grade encryption. So the reality is they're much safer than sharing passwords or using rudimentary passwords. So just a couple tips as children go back. And as I always say, do not mix a work and a personal computer together. So if you have your work computer, regardless of what security uh, measures are taken, it does not make sense to allow your children to use your work computer. Uh, most companies will have policies around that, but it, it sometimes uh, you're out and about and you have your, your, your laptop with you and your child needs to look something up or do something, resist that urge. That's where I would recommend using the mobile device. So just in the news of camera vulnerabilities, uh, Hikvision cameras, there was an, an article that was just posted in Bleeping Computer. Um, I think it was actually yesterday. This is not new new news, but just kind of an update. Uh, there was a fairly significant exploit at the beginning of the year that was identified, which allowed several hundred thousand uh, cameras, Hikvision cameras, to be accessible through this flaw or vulnerability. As of today, you, we're still seeing um, upwards of 80,000 devices available free and clear to access. Um, so back in February, there was a sample dump of about 285,000 internet-facing um, web servers, and still to this date, about 80,000 are still vulnerable with that exploit. And what when we talk about patching and updating, this is one of the things we continuously talk about here on the podcast is the importance of it, both from a personal and, a, and from a professional standpoint. If you're using Hikvision cameras today and you haven't made sure that you have the latest um, patches and updates, uh, you, you are susceptible to someone actually gaining access to your network and the video. And today, just to kind of give some numbers here in the United States, there's still roughly 11,000 cameras that are accessible. Um, and then when you look at the data that was available, this was in the, the all in Russian language. So some of it had to be translated. Uh, there's about 12,000 uh, in China, 7,000 Vietnam, and 5,000 or so in the UK. And then it goes down from there. But to think of um, in the United States, there's still roughly 11,000 cameras that are accessible uh, in the wild. So certainly something, if you're listening to this podcast and you use Hikvision, and I know um, I was with uh, some folks in the past couple of months that still do use Hikvision, make sure that you're getting with your IT teams if you don't manage that yourself and actually going out and making sure that they're updated. Um, the U.S. government, so this is not a new phenomenon, but a, it, a rather a more newish, if you will, has issued a, a $10 million bounty or reward on the ransomware group Conte um, that did this once before without success. But this is something that, again, we talk about a lot on the podcast here of how the United States government and how a lot of developed governments are taking a different approach to kind of counteract some of these very horrific gangs, uh, cyber gangs that are responsible for thousands and thousands of ransomware and cyber instances. Now, Conti has been probably the most recognized gang of cyber criminals in the last um, 18 months. Uh, there isn't a lot known about the the group. They Their pictures are silhouettes of individuals. Um, and there was a little bit of a fallout. There are Russian 
uh, group, the not Russian government backed, just in Russia. There was a little bit of fallout in the beginning of the year when the kind of the war in the Ukraine happened because there were some Ukrainian folks involved that did leak information about this group, but not enough to lead it to capture of any individual. So $10 million is out there for information leading to the uh, the capture of it. I think we're going to continue to see these type of uh, rewards, and I think they're going to be substantially higher than $10 million as we continue down this path. Uh, this group, it, it's not directly known how what the damage that this group has done, but we, we do know that there are thousands of instances reported. Um, and they are a group that targets first responders, 911, and municipalities. So um, some of the numbers were in last year, uh, 250 911 call centers were attacked by this, this breach. Um, and but not this breach, I apologize, this ransomware. And this is a group that is targeting that uh, that disruptive methodology of 911 ambulances and healthcare first responders primarily. So I think we'll continue to see ransomwares like that. And I think we'll continue to see kind of the growth in that sector. Uh, I think uh, switching gears a tiny bit, there has been a tremendous amount of chatter around midterm elections and upcoming elections uh, and civil unrest. I, I use the word chatter uh, intentionally because with such a um, emotionally charged comment, some uh, emotionally charged uh, type of thing here, like the political landscape, some of it is just chatter where folks are going out and uh, speaking in frustration online regardless of where they sit, but they're using terminology that in the past would be indications of threat. Now, I'm not saying that they're not today, but we're seeing a lot more conversation about burning things down and uh, causing much more disruption. But all of the analysts, uh, the intelligence analysts that I've read and spoke to um, have kind of predicted some level of civil unrest in major metropolitan cities as we continuously get closer to the midterm piece and even further along um, towards the, the actual election. So you're thinking two, potentially two years of civil unrest in some fashion. It, it is a little bit different here because you don't normally have this level of an intelligence conversation, both uh, domestically and globally, identifying that this will occur. So what you're starting to, to, to hear when you're talking to folks in this space is not, it might be a challenge. This is what could occur. The, you know, this is this will occur in major metropolitan cities. With that being said, there's no indication of how violent that would be, if violent at all. But it's certainly something to manage and to watch here. I know that the Lost Research Council has a fusion net and will continue to monitor um, and activate the fusion net as needed. And I think that um, for the listeners that don't know what the fusion net is, it, it is a, basically a tool for loss prevention research council members to use during an event. It doesn't just need to be civil disturbance, but a major event where we'd activate this and actually have calls as well as a platform to communicate and validate intelligence or, or at, in real time. So, uh, sharing news, sharing actual posts, real videos of occurrence, and then back and forth, co a collaborative environment 
to actually identify is something actually happening because one of the biggest challenges with um, these events is it is happening in real time and how do you validate it? And then just last, I'll wrap up with, because we're talking about active intelligence and social media monitoring and fusion net, there has been more and more reports. Elon Musk has uh, filed to get uh, more information on Twitter and the number of uh, fake accounts and mis misinformation out there. And it kind of leads me to remind why something like the fusion that is so important is that there is a tremendous amount of misinformation. And while social media is a fantastic tool for us to gather intelligence and find out what is occurring, it also, because of its openness and because of the way it works, allows bad actors to create fake, uh, create fake accounts, actually change narratives and really pushed uh, in a direction to, to try to curve a story. And what my, my example always is, is you can actually see a video of an incident from three different people and the narrative will be dramatically different just by cutting a video by five to 10 seconds. So when you are using social media and to monitor it, it I can't uh, express how important it is to make sure that there is some level uh, validation, and that is actually what the fusion that was for is how do we share information and validate? And with that, I will turn it back. Thank you, uh, Reed. Let me start this week with some analysis from Retail Dive on what happened in the second quarter for retail in the U.S., especially on topics such as inflation and inventory. As Retail Dive said, the second quarter was rough for retail. While there is a potential signs of growth and consumer recovery on the horizon, retailers are still grappling with operational hits that are reverberating from the ongoing pandemic. That is happening alongside a consumer base that is dealing with inflation by changing its shopping behaviors. Meanwhile, many retailers are cutting guidance as demand for non-essential goods erodes in some categories. This quarter, Target saw operating income fall 87% year-on-year as gross margins drop as markdowns increase and cost increase for merchandise shrink and freight. And keyword there for a lot of this audience also shrink. The company said it will be taking markdown and canceling orders, a short-term pain in order to prepare for uh, the last part of the year. Well, Walmart performed better than anticipated in Q2. Operating income in the U.S. business fell 6.7% to the lower operating profits and margins on markdowns. So here are some direct uh, quotes on inventory from that were published in the retail dive on what happened in the quarter with inventory and inflation. From the CEO of Walmart, quote, Starting back in March, we knew we needed to act quickly and aggressively in some categories, and we have. We have made good progress to reduce inventory levels where we focused and taken markdowns. The aggressive approach we took to move through the apparel in particular put financial pressure on us, but it helped relieve pressure on our stores and through the supply chain. From the CEO of Target, quote, consider the alternative. We could have held on to excess inventory and attempted to do this slowly with, uh, over multiple quarters or even years. While that might have reduced the near-term financial impact, it would have held back our business over time. Of course, this decision would have driven 
incremental costs to store and manage the excess inventory of our longer period. Much more importantly, though, it would have degraded the guest experience. It would have cluttered our sales force um, and hampered our ability to present new, fresh, and fashionable items, the ones that our guests expect. From the Executive Vice President of Merchandising for Home Depot, quote, we are still having to pull inventory forward. I think if you think about today's supply chain environment, our focus is to be there for our customers, to be there for our pros in terms of the right job, lock quantities and the right timing of events and other activities. So part of the inventory overage is obviously due to the work in terms of being there for our customers. We have some carryover inventory from the spring season but it is really low-risk inventory that we've been managing through and ensuring that we're ready for the next season. But overall, we feel good about our stock position. We're managing the inflation of our environment and inventory, and we'll be there for our customers in terms of in-stock. From the CEO of CJ Maxx, quote, we are in a terrific inventory position, and we have plenty of open to buy to take advantage of the current environment. This allows us to offer even more exciting merchandise and value to our shoppers, which is our top priority. When it comes to inflation, this is what the, the, some of the direct quotes from the retailer were in terms of Q2. From the CEO of Target, quote, while pressure on it from Manx's inventory has presented the biggest challenge for our team this year, dealing with higher costs and the volatility in the external supply chain has come a, so, a close second. And today, while conditions remain far from what they would have been considered normal in the years before the, the pandemic, there are early signs that both costs and volatility may have peaked. Uh, from the CFO of Macy's, here's a, their quote. When you think about freight and delivery, fuel costs are currently trending down, but they remain elevated uh, to what they we saw earlier in the year. So those are some really, really interesting uh, perspectives in terms of what's happening in retail in Q2, and the especially with inventory and inflation, which are two hot topics, and they'll project really forward in terms of what we do expect in Q3. And in my view, Target did the right thing in terms of the inventory, and so I do think we'll get back on track, but it will be a challenging rest of the year as flagged by some of the earnings statements from the different companies. Uh, switching topics from Statista, interesting news that global e-commerce revenue growth is shrinking for the first time. In what would be the first ever, uh, e-commerce revenues are forecast to shrink worldwide year on year in 2022. As quoted in the analysis that was written up uh, in Statista, from frenzy to fall, is e-commerce back to normal? This has always been in perspective, and many industries contest the comparison of today's growth figures to the pre-COVID-19 data. Nevertheless, the, the market is now compelled to tackle substantial questions about how to go forward, even if, if there is a lot of headwind for the moment. We still believe online sales will eventually increase and revenue uh, growth will we get back on track. Having spent time actually with some retailers while sitting here in Europe, I can tell you that they're, they're still bullish in terms of where e-commerce 
goes, uh, goes next. Uh, and as Statista continues, still the expected average growth is to be taken in context of the previous forecast for 2022, which have projected 481 billion more revenue by the end of the year. Supply chain issue is the largest single weakening factor with inflation also playing a significant part in the downward uh, revision. The widely expected global recession and subsequent increases in unemployment leave e-commerce sector uh, significant hurdles to overcome before we can get uh, back on track. And finally, as I said, I am in Europe, so some interesting news from the retailgazette.co.uk website, which reported that Oxford Street retail traffic jumped 24% thanks to the growing number of international visitors. A combination of factors will also have added to that, uh, including the heat wave and the start of the school summer holidays. Major events are also likely to have drawn international bidders in the UK, including the Women's Euros Championship with the finals hosted in London's Wembley Stadium. Oxford Street is actually one of my favorite streets in London to visit stores, and I actually will be there next week, so I'm looking forward to see what's new in retail and what are some of the hot trends. So it's good to see that retail is coming back even uh, in, in places like Oxford Street, which is uh, really popular and uh, very famous from around the world. So, and with that, let me now turn it over to- All right, well, thank you so much, Tony, for that information. Thank you so much, Tom, for all those good insights and you know, reflecting on uh, the LPRC Fusion Net program and all that you and Corey, um, Logan, but uh, many of our members put into that program to <clears throat> stand it up so rapidly um, and to leverage it, I think, fairly masterfully, um, especially during the heat of the pandemic and the rioting, the looting, the burning, the, the situations that we were dealing with um, was amazing effort by all. And um, we continue to work on that. And uh, we always, as Tom was saying, encourage everybody to get involved, learn more. It's just uh, we we have to work collaboratively. There's no way. There's too, there are just too many things going on, and the things that we're dealing with are just too complex and constantly changing. So we need a way to regularly connect, whether it's pre-planned or in the heat of the moment. And FusionNet helps us do both, um, both by text and by voice and by posting and telling all the things you've heard Tom talk about uh, since we stood up FusionNet. So thanks everybody out there. Uh, dial in to lpresearch.org, uh, query us on the website, um, reach out to operations at lpresearch.org, find out more. You heard Tom, you heard myself, um, Tony talking about uh, 2022 version of LPRC impact. And um, it's another wonderful way to get together, to learn, to teach, to share, uh, to enjoy each other's company, to build lasting uh, contacts and relationships that you're going to need professionally, all of us need and want. Um, in all these different areas. And when you bring together leaders from over 180 corporations here in Gainesville on the campus of the University of Florida, uh, go through such great content and have so many events and opportunities to do that. Um, we'd strongly encourage each and every one of you to find out more, get involved, register, come in and work with us. So everybody stay safe, stay connected, and thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 